0: Welcome to the documentary from the BBC World Service, where we report the world, however difficult the issue, however hard to reach. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. In 1969, a plan to show support for an anti-racism protest turned the lives of 14 promising black student-athletes upside down. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC
1: World Service tells their story. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: This episode of the documentary was recorded before the announcement of Alexei Navalny's death. In four weeks' time, people in Russia will vote for their president. No surprises are expected. Vladimir Putin, the man who's been in power
2: for 25 years... Will win. He is definitely a true star of this election. It feels like people have nothing else to talk about. This is not about
0: President Putin, rather about a dead cat
2: called Twix. Very bad <laughs> and evil train conductor threw him out of the train and uh, there was a huge outcry. The Twix saga
0: captured the limelight and stirred emotions, stealing attention away from the election.
3: If this election could be
0: summed up in one word, it would be formality. In what felt like a staged conversation with a group of admirers... Putin somewhat reluctantly agreed to run for a fifth term in office. (laughs) This isn't an election in the traditional sense.
4: It's all happening for one reason and one reason alone, which is to give Vladimir Putin's rule legitimacy and to create the illusion of democracy.
0: Welcome to this bonus documentary podcast from the BBC World Service with me, Krassi Twig. I present the Global Jigsaw podcast from BBC Monitoring, where we look at the world through the lens of its media to understand the competing narratives. In this episode, we focus on the engineering behind the Russian presidential election.
1: Goodbye.
0: Western
1: countries are not the international community. That era has finished.
0: When we talk about the Russian election, there's an important caveat that Vitaly Shevchenko, our Russia editor at BBC Monitoring, is keen to stress.
4: I'm tempted to use anything to do with what's going on in Russia at the moment. In quote marks, elections, election campaign, Central Electoral Commission, and all that, it's called guided democracy or managed democracy. There are different parties, different candidates, but at the end of the day, they don't make a difference. At the end of the day, everyone knows who is going to win
3: it's widely expected that Vladimir Putin is going to win. That's not to say it doesn't
0: present something of a headache for the Kremlin. Our main guide in this episode is Jen Monaghan, one of BBC Monitoring's Russia media analysts.
3: It has to be the right kind of victory. And by that, I mean things such as high share of the vote and a high voter turnout. In the last election in 2018, Putin got 77% of the vote and the turnout was 67.5%. The challenge now for the presidential administration is to ensure that the president, at a time of war, achieves even better results than last time.
4: More than 80%. I would venture this guess. It would be embarrassing for the Kremlin if those numbers are falling. It's pretty much vital for uh, the Kremlin to show that Russians still support Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, despite the two years of what they call the special military operation, despite the tens of thousands of deaths incurred they will need to come up with a number that they will be able to present on TV and say, look, Russians still want us.
0: Putin, it seems, is not competing with the other contenders, but with himself. He should do better than last time. So how is he doing? Polls are to be taken with a pinch of salt, but could give us some idea. If we take, for example, the independent Levada Centre a
3: pollster that most recently found that 58% of Russians, if they were to vote in an election next Sunday, would vote for President Vladimir Putin. Again, we can't always trust that people feeling able to express exactly what they feel in the conditions that now exist in Russia. The economy is struggling, Russians are facing sanctions, they're feeling the impact of this war, and for the Kremlin it has to show that this candidate Putin, the man who led the country to war, is still the man for the job.
0: It's clear that the Kremlin is facing a challenge if it wants to reach the target number, which might explain why some new election rules were introduced, as well as additional restrictions on reporting from voting stations.
3: This time, the election is going to be run over three days. This could be seen as stretching the resources of election monitors quite thinly. This year, many more voters will be able to vote electronically. Interestingly, there was a report by a Russian independent news outlet called The that found that the 29 regions where electronic voting has been allowed this time around were the 29 regions in which Putin's vote share and turnout share were much lower than compared to elsewhere in the country in the last election. So you can see why critics are concerned by these changes. They see it as a way of making it harder to observe the elections and making it easier to potentially
0: manipulate the votes. The election preparation unfolded in a carefully choreographed manner, starting with the top man playing hard to get.
3: Putin was asked during a televised awards ceremony by a military officer who had lost his son in the war to stand for
1: re-election. And
3: Putin in response replied he had had different thoughts at different times but that he understood there is no other way.
5: В разное время у меня были разные мысли, сейчас right.
3: The message is essentially that Putin is taking on a selfless act on behalf of the country and he's giving the people what they want. This message has since been reflected in
0: TV campaigns and Putin is the people's candidate. As this is still presented as an election, even if in name only, there must be more than one voting choice. So who are the other presidential hopefuls and how did they get there?
3: So in order to stand in the Russian presidential election, candidates have to submit various documents to their Central Electoral Commission. These might include things such as signatures collected on their behalf. There are candidates who've formally been registered to run by the Central Electoral Commission. These are the Communist Party candidate Nikolai Kharitonov, the Nationalist Liberal Democratic Party of Russia candidate Leonid Slutsky and the centre-right New People Party candidate Vladislav Davankov. All of these candidates support the war, none of these candidates have criticised Putin and in fact all of these candidates in various ways have said that they don't expect to win in this
0: election. These candidates are considered members of what they call in Russia systemic opposition.
3: The systemic opposition really are those members of the opposition who are allowed to participate in the parliamentary system. These are parties that broadly support Putin and his government, and are not really going to cause that much trouble for the Kremlin. They're, in effect, sanctioned by the Kremlin.
0: So the systemic opposition is the one designed to support the Kremlin. As for the incumbent, he is not running as a candidate of a party, but as a self-nominated one. It's a technicality that means he needs to collect at least 100,000 signatures – which were promptly gathered across the country Boxes full of signatures for Putin being delivered to the central Electoral commission dominated TV screens at the time
4: тем Чукотки обычным Анадри москва в столицу доставили подписи for other
0: self-nominated candidates, signature collection is a major deal and the verification of those signatures. Is a bigger stumbling block than you might think. Most contenders are ruled out usually at this
2: stage.
3: There was an attempt by a journalist called Ekaterina Duntsova to nominate herself as an independent candidate. She was running on an anti war platform. However, the Central Electoral Commission did not register her candidacy. It said that it found
0: errors in her documentation and she was barred from running. Some of the signatures supporting Dunsova's candidacy were ruled to be fake. An example given was of a drawing of a cat's face instead of a signature.
3: We have another interesting anti-war candidate, Boris Nadezhdin. At the time of recording, he submitted his signatures. We've already seen what appears to be a coordinated TV campaign preparing the ground for his candidacy to be rejected.
0: Boris Nadezhdin, his name deriving from the word hope in Russian, occasionally appears as a liberal commentator on TV. As a presidential hopeful, he declared his strong position against Russia's war in Ukraine and against Putin himself.
4: I run for presidential election because I'm against the politics of uh, current president. And Putin has started a special military operation. It's a very bad decision. It's a fatal mistake. And uh, I think that uh, Putin drags Russia into the track of militarism, track of isolation. And I'm against all of this.
0: One question on people's minds is how authentic could he be? Our researcher Yulia Volovik explains.
2: There is a lot of speculation about who he is. If he's not genuine, it probably would be a good PR move to invent somebody like Nadezhdin. I heard a lot of opinions that his campaign is artificially made just to create an illusion that there is a democracy in Russia. And deep inside, I think we would never find out was it staged or not. But being a Russian myself... I can understand his appeal to people.
4: It's entirely possible that he is genuinely opposed to the war, that he genuinely wants it to stop and the deaths to stop as well. But the fact is, he is very convenient for the Kremlin. I'm sure that everybody saw the thousands of people standing in line to give me the signature. Of course, the elections in Russia is not free and not fair. Of course, I have understanding that Russian uh, authorities have a lot of possibility not to allow me to election campaign, really. All these queues of Russians uh, waiting to sign paperwork for Boris Nadezhdin and enable his candidacy, it's a safe escape valve for all the frustrations and the anger accumulated over the past two years in Russia.
0: As expected, Boris Nadezhdin, who was endorsed by Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny from his prison cell, was eventually disqualified as a candidate. Because, again as expected, some of the signatures in his application were dismissed as flawed. He vowed to appeal the decision. For the non-systemic opposition, the picture is bleak. We've seen a
3: crackdown on the opposition. We've seen an increase in censorship, the non-systemic opposition or the opposition that operate outside of the system. Into that category, you could put people like Alexei Navalny, the jailed Kremlin critic, and his Anti-Corruption Foundation. There's also people now living in exile, such as Mikhail Hordakovsky or another opposition politician, Maxime Katz.
4: Or... Boris Nemtsov, who was murdered in 2015. That's the price you pay for effective activism in Russia.
3: The opposition church is quite broad if we're talking about non-systemic opposition, but really there's no united candidate or united policy around how the Russian non-systemic
0: opposition should proceed. You are listening to The Global Jigsaw from BBC Monitoring. We are weeks away from voting, so you'd assume hot election topics would be dripping from all taps. Well, not quite. State media
3: know that their role is to present Putin as the candidate of the Russian people, the man who will protect Russia against the West and all its alleged depravities. Putin is the defender of so-called traditional values. And state media know which topics they can and can't discuss when they're reporting around Putin. What can they touch? Well, I think this is where it gets quite interesting. There was a party in the run-up to New Year in Moscow, and it's become known as the Almost Naked Party, hosted by a blogger. Guests were encouraged to come wearing as little as possible. One rapper showed up wearing nothing but a sock covering his genitals. Footage of this party was leaked online, led to a huge backlash in pro-Kremlin media and in society as
2: well. before the war,
3: Why was that? Well, at a time of war, at a time when Russians are feeling hardships, this came across as excessive. There was a video shared that compared footage from the party with footage of Russian soldiers praying close to the front line.
0: Even the president waded into the scandal.
5: Ну, такие тоже нужны
3: чудики.
0: Talking there about freaks who bare their genitals or show their backsides.
3: The system was mobilized. The celebrities were forced to issue apologies.
0: И бы попросить второй шанс.
1: И пришел, но не знал о характере событий, которые будут происходить за этими дверьми. Филипп
2: и Дима Билан сказали важные слова. The club where
3: the party took place had its operations suspended. The rapper who wore a sock ended up being jailed for 15 days and fined 200,000 rubles um, on charges of petty hooliganism and promoting so-called LGBT propaganda.
0: Another story that caused moral outrage ahead of the election was that of a ginger and white cat called Twix.
3: Twix the cat was a family pet who was travelling on a train and was accidentally booted off this train by a train attendant who thought it was a stray. There was a public search for this cat, again, spearheaded by social media. People came out looking for this cat, and eventually, unfortunately, the body of Little Twix was found. This led to national outrage. There was a petition with tens of thousands of signatures calling for the train attendant to be punished in some way. Lawmakers from the ruling party announced they were going to set up a commission looking at rules around transporting animals. Public prosecutors announced they were going to look into possible instances of animal cruelty.
0: To explain what's really happening here, Jen has a fitting literary reference –
3: If listeners have read 1984 by George Orwell, there's something called the two minutes hate where the population is encouraged to vent their frustration at a designated enemy. It's really about channeling anger that exists naturally in society but directing that anger through the appropriate channels and away from the presidential administration of the incumbent
0: president, Vladimir Putin. Twix the cat became a celebrity... According to Levada Center, about two-thirds of Russians followed his story. At the same time, as if to prove Jen's point, vital issues concerning the future of the country didn't get any oxygen on state TV. Topics they
3: can't discuss, the war in Ukraine in a negative way, so death count, mobilisation of soldiers, protests by the wives and mothers of these soldiers who are calling for their sons to be sent home.
0: Let's look at the losses to remind ourselves of the immensity of the ongoing tragedy that Russians don't have to hear about, at least on state TV. Olga Ivshinov BBC Russian has for two years now been tracking
1: Russia's war dead. Since the start of Russia's invasion into Ukraine, BBC Russian, together with the independent outlet Mediazona and the team of volunteers, have been counting and putting down the names of the Russian soldiers killed in action in Ukraine, name by name, day by day. At the moment we have more than forty three thousand cases confirmed, and this puts a bare minimum of the count of the Russian losses in Ukraine. We We confirm these cases using open source data only and only those confirmed on the Russian side. What sources are you using? First of all, it's official statements. Almost two years after the start of the invasion, some Russian officials are making those statements. Now, it's not the head of the regions, it's head of the villages, heads of the libraries, directors of the schools. We also use reports in the local and national media, including tiny village newspapers being printed on paper. Those are being sent to us by volunteers. We also study situation on more than 70 cemeteries all over Russia. Pictures are being sent to us by volunteers. How do you know if the graves are from the current war? We studied those with great care and uh, tombs of uh, soldiers killed in Ukraine are are quite specific. They have flags, pictures of people in military uniform and rests. So putting all those numbers together, we not only know the bare minimum for Russian losses, we also understand what's happening with the Russian army. For example, at the beginning of the invasion, the average soldier was 21 years old, professional soldier, usually a paratrooper or a Marine. Now it's a 34-year-old convict.
0: What would you estimate is the real scale of Russian losses?
1: looking at the graves, we also understand not only how many cases we know but also, on average, how many were missing. Because each time we get pictures from the cemeteries. We see everyone who was mentioned in the press or in the official statements, and on average, a similar amount of people who weren't mentioned anywhere. So this brings us to understanding that possibly the real scale of Russian losses, killed in action only, is around 90,000 killed. So with the wounded, it's at least twice more, I guess.
0: What impact does the ongoing war have on Putin's standing?
3: Putin's approval rating, according to these polls by the Levada Centre, hasn't dipped below 80% for the past year. That's an extraordinary statistic. Somehow Putin has managed to shield himself from the worst of the criticism about what some Russians would perceive as the failings of the war in Ukraine. When bad news has to be delivered, it's left to other people. So there's been a lot of discontent in the Russian public against the mobilisation of soldiers to fight. There's been a campaign by the mothers and wives of these troops to bring their men home. They were calling out Putin, and they specifically highlighted the fact that he had granted prisoners who agreed to fight in Ukraine for six months, a presidential pardon, whereas these men who'd been mobilised had an indefinite period of service in the
0: armed forces. Russia is tightly controlled. There are repressive laws in place which criminalise political activism and criticism of Russian troops or what they're doing in Ukraine. So vocal protest from the mothers and wives of soldiers is an extraordinary phenomenon. Yulia has taken a special interest in it.
2: I would say the main descent force is women. These are basically mothers and wives and sisters of so-called heroes, who fight on the front line. So this is the force that Russian government cannot ignore easily. They started protesting after mobilization happened. Very soon it became obvious that their relatives, there are on the front line for indefinite time. Uh, military authorities made it clear that they have no intention of rotating people the movement of relatives, of mobilizers, is getting stronger and stronger. And how do they protest? They write petitions, they meet with their authorities, they organise flash mobs, for example. there was its It's funny and not funny at the same time. They put big stickers on their cars, which basically say, bring my husband back, I had enough of this. But in much more rude words, I would say... Something we can't have on air.
0: And what do you make of this defiance that you see in these women?
2: This is very unusual for Russian society. I can imagine these women must be absolutely desperate if they dare to protest openly. <laughs> They don't put forward any political claims. All they want is their husbands to be back.
0: How much of a threat do you think these women are for the Kremlin and for Putin's reputation?
2: I think this is a serious force that Russian authorities have to take into account because you cannot silence them that easily and also they don't demand anything extraordinary All they want is to get their husbands back and fairness.
4: That's something that the Kremlin is really worried about and at one of the most recent such protests, it's notable how the Kremlin handled it. They did not arrest the actual wives and mothers. They arrested the reporters covering the protests. So that's the the kind of the approach the Kremlin takes to information management, if it's not in the
0: media, it didn't happen. The Kremlin has always understood the danger the media could pose. And following the launch of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, nearly all independent media was squeezed out of the country. But our colleagues, who keep an ear to the ground, even in regions far away from the capital, are able to pick up some clues.
3: There are some fantastic independent news outlets that exist abroad, exiled media outlets such as The Insider, Medusa, Against the Eye Stories. We can also turn to social media, Telegram in particular, for video footage or reports of things that are happening on the ground. We can access local news outlets, mainly through Telegram. An example of this would be the mass protests in the Republic of Bashkortostan. There was a local activist who was jailed on charges of inciting ethnic hatred that his protesters say were trumped-up charges against him. This was a popular member of the local community and thousands of people came out onto the streets to protest his sentence. They also called for the resignation of the local head of the republic. And in fact, if we look at the Russian Republic of Dagestan in Russia's south, last October there were protests there. Anti-Semitic pogroms. So these issues have been flagged as local issues that really the heads of the republics and the governors need to be across and,
0: and need to manage in this election campaign. And do you think there's a difference in the narratives that you see playing out in different regions? And is there a race between these governors to deliver for the Kremlin?
3: I think there is a race. I think the way that the whole system is set up in Russia now is it rewards loyalty and it punishes disloyalty and by that I also include failure to achieve objective targets. According to Commissants reporting, the presidential administration wants these elections to be run
0: calmly and really without trouble. Another new element of this election is an expected show of loyalty from what Russia calls its new territories – these are, in fact, regions of occupied Ukraine, where campaigning has been in full swing since early December. The Kremlin, in one way, wants to
3: make it easier for certain people to vote. So just to take, for example, the Russian-occupied territories of Ukraine that Russia now claims as its own. There are efforts there to ensure that
0: those living in these territories will be able to vote, even if they don't have a Russian passport. In contrast, the voting experience of Russians living abroad would be somewhat more complicated.
3: The almost 11 million Russians who are living outside of the country, for them it's going to be a lot more difficult to vote. They'll have to travel back to Russia to obtain documentation in the first place that's going to allow them to then vote outside of the country them they'll have to go in person to an embassy or a consulate to register their vote. some of these russians are on wanted lists they're on charges trumped up charges some would say and really if you think about either going back to russia to get your documentation or entering a consulate or an embassy essentially you're subjecting yourself to russian law that exists on that territory and many of these russians are scared or don't want to do that
0: A creeping doubt by the Russians about their leader, despite his supposed 80% popularity rating, has found an expression in a conspiracy theory. It's the belief that Putin has multiple body doubles, often saving him from the chore of having to meet ordinary people. This theory took off in a big way outside Russia too, after the invasion of Ukraine. It had such a popular appeal that Vladimir Putin's spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, had to issue a jokey denial. Experts are trying to guess if there are three or four body doubles, but we have only one Putin, he says here to a round of applause. But despite his denial, my colleague Adam Robinson from our Russia team went ahead to investigate the theory.
5: It's the kind of thing Russians generally tend to believe about their government, that it's all kind of conspiracies, that everything's secrets, it's skullduggery. This goes back to Soviet and even probably Tsarist times. Um, and there's always been this sort of slightly jokey just assumption, of course Putin has body doubles because he's got this reputation of being a very paranoid, suspicious guy who is constantly obsessed by security details. And it's just kind of become mainstream recently since the war started. And one of the reasons is the Ukrainians have picked it up. And I think they kind of quite like to use it because it's obviously a good weapon of psychological warfare, because you're portraying Putin as this coward, who's afraid to come out and meet people because he thinks they're going to try and assassinate him. And the other reason is that I think recently there was a sort of a change in his behavior. Like during COVID, he'd conducted every meeting through video um, conferences. And that continued long after COVID had ended. That He was still hunkering in his bunker. And then all of a sudden he did start to come out and he went for a visit to occupied Ukraine. And he actually met people, pressed the flesh. And there's this debate, you know, even amongst quite sort of respected liberal commentators. like, How do you explain that? I mean even people who wouldn't want to believe that there's body doubles because they think it's a conspiracy theory. They say this is such a drastic change of behavior. It, it apparently is untrue.
0: And I think it's fair enough to say in the West, many people have bought it. Do you think Russians believe it?
5: I think it's quite possible. I think they just assume the worst about their government. You generally hear it from Russians that everything you see is some kind of front and it's pretend. And there's a sort of a core of truth to that because government in Russia has always been marked by quite intense secrecy. And the Kremlin is sort of continuing these traditions. You're always left guessing as to what is really going on behind the Kremlin walls. The decision-making process is completely opaque. And Russians are used to this. This is how the Soviet Union worked as well. Um, A lot of decisions were taken by a very small, tightly knit group of people.
0: You have looked into the veracity of
5: these rumors. What kind of research did you do? Well, the main thing is we use this engine that kind of, it checks people's facial structure and it uses AI to kind of compare certain key points on the face. How it works is it gives you a likelihood. It doesn't say yes or no it gives you a percentage likelihood of how likely this person is a match to another. And we've spoken to experts and they say this software is actually quite reliable now. It's quite good. They say 80% is usually the mark you're looking for to pretty much rule out the chance that this is another person. We've actually compared like different Putins that allegedly are different people. We've always come out with something like 99% match that these are the same people. So something that to the human eye looks, the software looks past that and it kind of says, yeah, it does seem fairly certain that this is the same person.
0: I think these rumours, they were pointing at slightly different behaviour and Putin in a different temperament, a hugging Putin, these kind of things. How do you explain that?
5: People always point to basically soft tissue issues like changing shape of the ear, change of the chin or the jowls, um, he looks fatter or thinner. And we've interviewed experts in plastic surgery or like skin experts. And they all say that a lot of the differences that can be explained either by aging or by treatment for illnesses, possibly for cancer. there are constant rumors that Putin has some form of cancer, that he takes certain things or that he's had Botox.
0: I think you just uh, probably disappointed many people with your conclusions. I hope not. (laughs) This insight into how Russians view those in power offers some food for thought about Putin's supposed popularity and how much he is in control of his story. Let's hear some more from Vitaly and Jen.
4: This is probably one of the most repressive and tightly controlled elections since Vladimir Putin came to power. In fact, so many people say that there was only one genuine election Vladimir Putin actually won in his more than 20 years of being in power. And that's the first one.
0: Why do you think leaders with autocratic tendencies need elections?
4: Very few autocrats are happy to be called that. Very few of them are happy to say, yeah, I'm a dictator. I do what I want. Nobody is allowed to challenge me. They like being seen as a democrat they're like presenting this facade which says i'm doing all i can i'm a democrat and we've got parties we've got candidates we've got some the media what else do you want so that's how things have been a number of countries not just russia
3: my impression is putin really wants to go down in history as vladimir the great he sees himself as the man to restore russia to its former glory and that includes through territorial expansion and if he were to stop now with russia in the midst of this war it hasn't succeeded really and the job's not done i think he wants that time to see this project through to completion I'm sure i will be keeping an eye on what happens in the United States, um, the presidential election that we'll be having there. If reports are to be believed, the Kremlin will be looking for a Donald Trump victory because it's widely believed in Russia that Trump will be willing to come to some sort of settlement or agreement with Russia over Ukraine.
0: Thank you to Jen Monaghan, Vitaly Shevchenko, Adam Robinson, Yulia Volovic and Olga Ivshina. This episode of The Global Jigsaw was produced by Krista Shattery and me, Krassi Twig, and was mixed by Martin Appleby. Our editor is Judy King. Watch out for more episodes as our season two is coming up shortly. Subscribe so you never miss an edition. Krista and I are off to reread some George Orwell. Send us your recommendations.
1: were the Black 14.
2: 14 football players who were at University of Wyoming in 1969. 14
0: student athletes who paid a heavy price for planning a show of support against racism.
2: It hit the campus like wildfire. Some of them was getting death threats.
1: Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. It was a complete surprise that he kicked us off the team. What are we going to do
5: with our lives? How are we going to get our degrees?
1: Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. In a world where change is constant, it pays to look beyond your borders. The Financial Times offers a global perspective to give you a deeper understanding of international markets and emerging trends. Broaden your horizons and widen your influence. Fearlessly Pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless.